Well, we're not going to read the entire book tonight, even though it's only 48 verses, but I would like us to begin by reading the first two chapters, just to get a little context. Um, They are short chapters, and then we will get, we will look at the first three verses tonight. We'll come back to verse three next week, because we can't exhaust that, Uh, but my plan is for us to look at the first three verses, which is kind of like the introduction, but even with that, that we would begin Uh, by looking at the first two chapters, which is the first subsection of the book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. That word great, you're going to see several times um, in the book. Um, It's it's a very important word, in fact, in the book. I think it's found like 14 times. The the Hebrew word is gadol, if you're spelling in English, G-A-D. Um, O-L, that great city, and call out against it for their evil. Ra'ah, that word is found numerous times as well in the book. You're going to see that um, about nine times, I think. It has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain. All right? So he's running in the opposite direction. And from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Note God's sovereignty throughout this book. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come against us. And so they cast lots And the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Note he doesn't answer that. Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Notice they are calling on the covenantal name here. O Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed, note this sovereignty here, he appointed a great fish, it doesn't say a whale, we don't know what kind of fish it was, Uh, to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, 
For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Remarkable passage. Um, In 2001, I was close to graduating uh, with my MDiv from seminary, and Heather and I had spent three years. I was a pastoral intern uh, at a church in Auburn, Alabama, and one of our last assignments was to go to uh, Maryland, and we were going to be a part of a church plant, so the, the Various interns in the group were to go to different churches in Maryland. And so I was assigned to the church. And, and all of these other guys, uh, a lot younger than I was at the time, I was in my early 30s, um, they, they are, were assigned these really remarkable places to live for the summer. They had these nice apartments, and, and, and it was really a good deal, but not me, uh, not Heather and me. Uh, we were told that we were going to be staying with a family uh, who had two young children in a two-bedroom apartment, and we would probably be sleeping on the floor for the summer. Um, And let me just tell you, that irritated me, because there were other guys in the intern group. In fact, we were the only married couple, all right? And so all these other single guys were going to have these apartments, where they were going to be staying in Maryland, and we're married, and we're going to be sleeping on the floor in a two-bedroom apartment. And I was really, to be perfectly frank, I didn't want to go. Um, at the time, Heather was in a very successful music group, uh, and I had left a very lucrative pharmaceutical job to go to seminary to be a pastoral intern. And to be frank, I thought I was above it. I thought we were above having to do that And I did not want to go. Well, the pastor of this church caught wind of my dissatisfaction because I had made it very public. Um, And he called me and he said, uh, he, you know, he struck up the conversation. And it turns out he and I had completely different theologies, completely different methodologies. But he said something in this conversation that I have never forgotten. He said to me, Brian... To become what you're not, you have to go in the way that you're not. Let me repeat that again. To become what you're not, you have to go in the way that you're not. Do you understand what he was saying by those words? All of us are broken and incomplete, even as believers. God has saved us from the penalty of sin. He is presently saving us from the power of sin Fact is, God exposed pride in my life, uh, extreme pride and even anger at him, discontentment with the way he was doing things, that is the Lord. And so to become what we're not, 
God takes us in the way that we're not so that we become what we are not, okay? And uh, we eventually got to Maryland and again, just so convicted by my sin. Here was a couple uh, who had very little. And when I say they were poor, they were as poor as anybody that you probably know. Uh, their their daughter had a, a very significant medical issue and they didn't have insurance. And they were paying everything they had to, 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 for, for medical bills. And, and yet they were the most joyful family Heather and I had ever seen. They, were jo- they had nothing. And here we are, we come into this apartment and when we get there, we weren't the ones sleeping on the floor, they were. They gave up their bed. And now we fought it tooth and nail, but they would, they, it was their delight. And so this couple who had nothing gave up their bed for the summer and slept in the floor uh, so that Heather and I uh, could, could uh, have a more comfortable place to stay for the summer. And that summer was a remarkable summer for us, primarily because what we learned from this family. Uh, They had family worship every night. It's before we had children. And they would sit around the table at dinner and they would read through the scriptures. They would talk about the word and they were very evangelistic. They were the most joyful family and they had absolutely nothing materially. And God used that powerfully. But part of the process was being exposed. The things that were in my heart that I wasn't even aware were there, were exposed by this difficult assignment. So when we come uh, to Jonah, keep in mind, it's primarily a book about God's steadfast love, even for the nations, all right? That's one of the very important concepts there. You'll see that in chapter 4, for instance, when he says... um, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's really the central theme of the book. It's about God's steadfast love, but it's not just his love for Israel. It's his love for the nations. And so that's primarily the the main point of the book. But secondarily, it's addressing and exposing Jonah in his sin. Okay, God calls Jonah to do the very thing that Jonah didn't want to do to expose indwelling sin, to expose the idols in Jonah's heart. Um, Jonah's reaction to God's command and his dissatisfaction with that command revealed idols that he was not even aware were present in his heart. He became essentially angry at God. And Jonah, even though he is a historical figure, and this is a historical book, I believe with all my heart that this has happened in history. It's also a parable. It's a parable of Israel's heart at the time. God is showing Israel um, through this representative prophet what their hearts were really like. But it's also a parable to our hearts as well. And so that's what makes this um, book so important for us. Came across a wonderful treatment on the idols of the heart several months ago by a man named Ian Dugweed. 
If you would bear with me, listen to these words. I think you will find them very insightful, and I think they're relevant to our passage tonight. He says, as long as we get what we want and our idol is smiling upon us. Now, what is our idol? Now, you, you can be a believer and still struggle with the idols of the heart, okay? They're functional idols. They're not, we're not under the dominion of these idols because idolaters do not inherit the kingdom of God. But we have functional idols, things that we think we need in order to have true uh, contentment and, and, and happiness and pleasure in life, okay? Things outside of God himself, okay? So that's what we mean by idols. And he says, as long as we get what we want... And our idol is smiling upon us. It's easy for us to be oblivious to the power our idol has gained over us. Something secondary has taken God's place at the center of our lives. And we may never even recognize there's a problem. As long as we're healthy, we do not suspect how important it is to our self-worth that we're able to stand up and walk around and control our bodies. As long as we are reasonably comfortable financially, we have little idea how much we have come to depend and rely on our money. As long as we're able to provide the daily sacrifices that our hungry idols require, they smile on us and bless us and we go our merry way. But when we are unable to make the payments they demand, things turn nasty. When we're no longer healthy or wealthy, then our idols start to curse us. And we experience a range of negative emotions such as fear and anger and despair. You see, those negative emotions that we have can always be traced back to something you're trusting in too much. Because when you're trusting in God... The, the anxieties and despair is not there. We're trusting in something else. And so these are symptoms, right? The despair and the anxieties, the fears, um, the anger, the bitterness, the resentment. All of these negative emotions we've all had can be traced back to unfelt idols. That's what he's saying here. In the strength of those negative emotions, we discover the true nature of our idols. And the depth of their hold on us. As we plunged into self-doubt and deep despair, we discover how much stock we have placed in the values and virtues and glittering prizes of this world. In God's grace, a black Monday meltdown on our own internal stock market may be the means he chooses to use to open our eyes to what is going on in our hearts. He's talking about this um, internal stock market. What he means by that is the things internal that we place great value on that are not God himself. And then you have to have that, that Black Monday meltdown to be exposed to it so that you can begin to deal with it. Tracing back negative emotions is one of the surest ways to uncover the identity of your idols. That is a good word. Tracing back negative emotions is one of the surest ways to uncover the identity of your idols. So if you have this inordinate anger about something or anxiety about something, 
that something is not really your problem. Your heart is your problem. You're trusting in that something, okay? To bring you happiness, identity, significance, pleasure, uh, contentment, and it's not delivering on what it promised. And now you're angry and you're bitter. Those negative emotions, therefore, become messengers from God, enabling you to identify your idols, which is a necessary prerequisite for turning from them. All right? And everything God does is to reveal these things so that they can be addressed in our lives. In other words, with every event, every circumstance we face in life, God in His wise providence, okay, is accomplishing a plethora of purposes. God is sending Jonah to Nineveh because He wants to deliver Nineveh from judgment. But He's also sending Jonah to Nineveh to deliver Jonah from Jonah, all right? To deliver Jonah from his idols. And so God is always doing these multifaceted purposes in everything he does. And that's why we need this book, because it's a book about us. Now, brief overview about Jonah. Uh, The last 17 books of the Old Testament are called the prophets. All 17 of those books are called the prophets. The last 12 of the 17 are called the minor prophets. Now, they're, not, they're not minor because they're less important. All scripture is God-breathed, which means that the genealogy in First Chronicles, which is nine chapters long, is as inspired as John 3.16. It is. It's just as breathed out by God. It's just as equally the Word of God as John 3.16. Now, it may not be as profitable for our salvation, but it's just as inspired, okay? And so the 12 minor prophets are minor simply because they're shorter than the other prophets, all right? That's why they're called the minor prophets. And we also need to know that these 12 minor prophets travel together. Sometimes we see these 12 as isolated, 12 isolated books, but the fact is um, they were collected into one scroll by the Jews known as the Twelve. And they deal with the same themes. And the period of time of the minor prophets extends to about 300 years. All right? Now, Jonah is writing. uh, The writer of Jonah, we don't know who the writer is. We don't know exactly when it was written, but he's dealing with a, a period of time in the 700s B.C., uh, the 8th century B.C., all right? And, and so that's early on for the writing prophets. It's one of the earliest prophets that you're going to read about. It's the fifth of the 12 minor prophets. Here's what else is interesting. And we don't have time to do this, but those 12 are in the order they're in for a purpose. For instance, you have in the beginning, uh, before Jonah, you have Obadiah. And before Obadiah, you have Amos. At the end of each one of these books, there are certain themes that the writer of the next book will pick up at the beginning of their book. And then they will close with certain themes that the next writer will pick up. And so that shows you how the 12 kind of come to us together. In fact, I thought about when we finished Jonah going into Micah, it's a relatively short prophet, uh, and he picks up some of the very themes that we're going to see in Jonah. Now, Jonah, um, along with the other prophets is what many have called the dark continent of Scripture. Now, why do we call it the dark continent? Because 
It's inspired territory, but very few people have explored it very well. All right, and so that's important. It's important that we get into uh, the prophets. Um, now, what's interesting about Jonah is that unlike the other prophets that center on the message of the prophet, Jonah centers on the messenger. Uh, Jonah, this book, centers on Jonah himself. In other words, that Jonah's life is God's message to his people. It's not Jonah's message per se. It's Jonah's life that is the message to Israel, who the original writer was writing to. And he is showing them that as heinous as Jonah looks in his running from the command, that's who you are, Israel. As heinous as Jonah looks in his despising the nations, God is saying, that's who you are, Israel. And we could very well apply that to the modern-day church. And the message of Jonah is God's capacity to forgive is monumentally larger and greater than our capacity to sin. That's one of the great, great hopes we found in the book. Nineveh, you won't ever find anyone. Um, you've probably never met anyone as evil as the Ninevites. I mean, they would skin their, their uh, you know, victims alive. They would flay them. Uh, very evil people. And God brings this national repentance. It's a remarkable repentance. So God's capacity to forgive is much greater than our capacity to sin. Now, just a real brief word on the stru- structure here. Um, it's, it's real easy. Um, chapter 1 focuses on Jonah at sea. Chapter 2 focuses on Jonah in the great fish. Chapter 3 focuses on Jonah in Nineveh. And chapter 4 focuses on Jonah outside uh, the city of Nineveh. So that's how it breaks down. And there's really two parts to it. Jonah 1 and 2 and then Jonah 3 and 4. And what's interesting is each one of these divisions begins with the same words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1. And if you look in chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And so that's a little bit of the background um, and breakdown of the book. Now, the first thing we're going to see is the Lord's call to Jonah and the Lord's jealousy for the nations. All right? The Lord's call to Jonah and the Lord's jealousy uh, for the nations. Look with me in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... The word of the Lord came to Jonah is used over a hundred times in the prophets. I mean, I, I just got through reading Ezekiel and time and time again, it says the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. And so that signals to the reader that Jonah's a prophet. It's very clear that Jonah is a man that God has raised up to prophesy to his people. That's what it meant to be a prophet, to receive the word of the Lord. Now, we know very little about Jonah and his history and his background, but we know something. For instance, we know who his immediate predecessors in the prophetic ministry were. Who do you think they were? Well, you've heard of them. His predecessor, 
Well, they, yeah, they were, I would consider them contemporaries because Amos is, is prophesying at the same time. But that's, yeah, definitely a contemporary. His predecessors were Elijah and Elisha. In fact, I want you to look real quickly at 2 Kings chapter 2. There's something you're going to see over and over again in 2 Kings. We won't look at all of them. I'll just look, give you a couple examples. You have um, this uh, description of the sons of the prophets. Now, who are the sons of the prophets? They are the protégés to Elijah and Elisha. They're the ones who are sitting at the feet of Elijah and Elisha. They, they are, they're understudies, if you will. They're interested about the kingdom of God, and they are studying and learning about the prophetic ministry at the feet. Look in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 3. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha. Look in verse 5. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near Jericho drew near to Elisha. Verse 7. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. Uh, that's both Elijah and Elisha. And then you look over. In verse 15, now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. It's hard to be sure, but most scholars, I say many scholars, I have not surveyed every scholar, so how could I say most? Many scholars believe that Jonah was one of these sons of the prophets. He was an understudy. He was a man who had sat at the feet of Elijah and Elisha. He had seen them go to Gentile people and bring healing and restoration. And he probably didn't like it based on what we know about his character. But it's very likely that Elisha, that Jonah was one of the sons of the prophets who learned at the feet of Elijah and Elisha, two of the great prophets in the Old Testament. But one thing we do know about him, we read in 2 Kings chapter 14. I want you to turn there because this is the only other explicit place we read about Jonah. You know, some of these more liberal scholars say that Jonah is, a, a, is kind of like a, an allegory or a story, but it, it's not real history. Well, there's a problem with that. Jesus believed he was real history. It was real history. And we actually read about him in 2 Kings chapter 14. Now, this is a very important passage to give us some idea about who Jonah was. <clears throat> Notice in verse 23. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. This is about 150 years after Solomon. After Solomon has died and you have the splitting of the kingdom, right? 931 B.C. So you have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom of Judah. And so you have two different kings. Uh, that's, that's the division that you see in Israel. In verse 24, it says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel 
Now, this is remarkable here. In spite of his sins, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hemoth as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. It's the only other place we see him mentioned, but he is a historical figure. Uh, he played a major role in the, the securing of the borders here by prophesying that it would come to happen. Who was from Gath, Hefer, three miles, as a side note, from where our Lord would be born. Uh, so he is from Gath, and verse 26, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. This is all of grace. In other words, Jeroboam, uh, the second, who's the king in the first half of the 8th century in Israel, is an evil king. And yet God shows mercy to Israel by um, provoking Jeroboam to secure the northern borders of Israel. From who? The Assyrians. The Assyrians. And he tells him, through the mouth of the prophet Jonah. It is declared through the mouth of the prophet Jonah. And so what we learn from that is that Jonah is likely a very famous, well-known, esteemed, and respected prophet even in the dark days of Israel. He would have many great privileges. He would have been esteemed because of his ministry in this time. And so this is the context of Jonah. Jonah's historical figure who God has used mightily even in the dark days of Israel. He would have gained much fame from this prophecy. And so we probably get the impression from that that he had great privilege and fruitfulness and success. Now, if God was as concerned with greatness as we are, as we talked about this morning, it seems that this would have been the perfect time to capitalize on Jonah's fame. Let's get a book deal going for Jonah. And let's kind of piggyback on this success and use his celebrity, all right, to bring credibility and, you know, credence to the message of Yahweh. That's what we would consider him to do. After all, Jonah's the great prophet. That's not what he does at all, is it? We're going to see just the opposite, in fact. He doesn't give us that kind of book. You think he would have given us some kind of purpose-driven prophetic ministry written by Jonah from Amittai. And that's not what he gives us. In fact, what he gives us shames Jonah, exposes his sin. Now look with me in verse 2. Arise, he says. Go to Nineveh. I know you're comfortable here. I know you've been fruitful and successful here. And you want to retire here. You want to grow old here. Raise your family here. That's, I'm not interested in your comforts. I'm interested in your holiness. So I'm going to call you to do what you don't want to do. And I know you don't want to do it. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. 
for their evil has come up before me. Now, we're going to talk more about their evil next week. And we're going to talk about more about why probably Jonah didn't want to go next week. But the fact is, this was a very difficult command, very difficult commission. The first question is, why is Jonah called to a Gentile nation when most of the prophets are called to speak and prophesy against Israel? What would be your answer to that question? Why, why is God calling him to a Gentile nation? This just seems a little off the cuff. Why do you think that's the case? He loves the nations. It was always God's plan to save the nations. It wasn't just about saving Israel. He called out Israel to be a blessing to the nations. Okay? And so it was God's plan from Genesis 3.15 on to save the nations. In fact, in, Je- in Genesis 11, when you have um, the Babel towers, you know, and all the nations are there and God just brings judgment. All the nations are dispersed over the face of the earth. God calls Abraham and he says in Genesis 12, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. What nations? The nations he just judged in Genesis chapter 11. And so it was God's intention from the very beginning to use Israel as the instrument by which he would save the nations. This is not, God is, Here's the problem. Jonah was a nationalist and God is an internationalist. That's the problem. He didn't like those people. That's part of the problem. It's much more deeper than that. In fact, if you look in Exodus chapter 19, after God calls them out of Egypt and he makes covenant with them, we talked about that last week a little bit in the morning. It's interesting what he says in verses 5 and 6. Chapter 19 He says, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and to obey his voice is to obey the law. God's given them a law. And he says, and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You see that? Among all peoples. He's got all the peoples in his scope. For all the earth is mine. It's not just Palestine that's mine. All the earth is mine. I want my glory on all the earth. I want the entire cosmos. I want the entire earth to behold my glory. And I'm going to use you. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was their vocation. Now, it's different than what we have in the Great Commission to a certain degree. Because under the Old Covenant... It was not a go and tell. It was a come and behold. All right? Because the the presence of God, the the covenant presence of God was confined to the temple. All right? And so the, the nations were to stream to Israel and behold their God. Israel's obedience and fidelity to the covenant was like an apology. It was like an apologetic to the nations. They see Israel's holiness And they want what Israel has. Do you remember uh, the Queen of Sheba who comes to Israel beholding the glory of Solomon? And she beholds it and then she goes forth and tells. And again, that's important because it also serves as a type. Because that's exactly what you see in the New Testament when the nations stream to Jesus, the true and faithful Israel. They stream to him. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so he is lifted up and, and they 
he does draw all men to himself. That's Pentecost, chapter 2 of Acts. And the nations stream to Jesus. They behold his glory, and then they go forth and tell. And so you see this kind of imagery even beginning in the Old Testament. And so it wasn't that Israel had a great commission call like we do, though it was very important that Israel function as the instrument of God's glory to the nations. In fact, I want you to see a very important passage from Psalm. We could look at so many of these, but we just don't have time. Look at Psalm chapter 67. And, and, and I could turn you to so many of these, not just in the Psalms, but throughout the Old Testament. But this is one of the really clear ones. It says in Psalm 67, 1 and 2, May God be gracious to us. Who's us? Israel. And bless us. And make his face to shine upon us. Why? Well, the psalmist answers that. That your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. The psalmist is saying, God, may you bless us so that we can carry out our vocation as the kingdom of priests to the nations. And so the fact that God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, that shouldn't have been that shocking to Jonah. That was their vocation from the very beginning. And I believe Jonah represents Israel's heart and even our hearts. In fact, by sending Jonah to the nations, God was provoking his own people to jealousy. Now, you don't have to turn there. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, listen to what Moses prophesies. It's a very, very remarkable passage. Verse 21, he says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. Who's he talking about? Israel. They've made me jealous with what is no God. In other words, they're worshiping false gods. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. That's exactly what he's doing. He is provoking Jonah. He is provoking Israel because of their ethnocentricity, their nationalism, their, their racism, their hatred for the nations. Nineveh represents the nations as a whole. Okay? And so that's part of the background. And so it was mercy not only for Nineveh, but it was mercy for Israel and Jonah that he sends uh, him to these people. Keep in mind that when God calls us to do something, and he does, if you're a believer, trust me, God is calling you to do something. You may not have the marching orders yet, but when God calls you to do something, he's up to something very glorious. He's up to kingdom building. He's up to something good. But when he calls you to do something, it's going to take desperate faith. There will be a crisis of faith, in fact, as, as Henry Blackaby teaches us in Experiencing God. There will be a crisis of faith. I think Janice Kidd knows something about that, right? Uh, a crisis of faith when God calls you to do something. You can rationalize a thousand reasons why you shouldn't do it. But what God is doing... He's not only calling you to be an instrument, he's just as interested in you as he is the people he's calling you to, okay? 
He's getting us out of our comfort zones. He's exercising our faith. He's exposing sins. He's exposing idols. He's exposing things that we're trusting in that is not God himself. That's what he's doing. He does many things with every command. And even though it may be a difficult call, uh, we respond and trust that God's grace will be sufficient. I mean, think about it. Jonah was a reputable prophet. He was a very well-known, well-to-do prophet in a good place, doing a good work in service to God. And God interrupts his life. He interrupts his comfortable life and sends him to a hard place. And it's not because God needed him. God needs nothing. He can cause up the rocks to praise him, okay? He's just as interested in Jonah's heart as he is the people he's calling to now, Nineveh, um, their ruins can be found in the northern part of Iraq today. That's where Nineveh is, the northern part of Iraq. It would have been about a 600-mile journey for Jonah. And the plains weren't as good back then, all right? 600 miles is tough, all right? Let me just tell you, I drove 400 miles Wednesday. It was tough. I came back crying. You know, just tail between my legs. I can't even envision. God called him to make a 600-mile journey. And he knew when he, get that, when he got there, he was going to be facing a people that did not love his God. In fact, some of the most dangerous people who've ever walked the planet. And so God was calling him. He was uh, telling him to go. In other words, when God calls you to do something like this, you take the pains to do it. Uh, 600 miles was a tough journey. It's a very tough journey, and God was not impressed with any excuses. It also reminds us from this text that God is intimately aware of everything that's going on. Notice, go to Nineveh, that great city. Their evil has come up before me. He is very aware of everything that's happening in the world. He, he's aware of what's happening in our country. Uh, he's aware of what's happening in our church, in, our, in your family. He is very aware of everything that's happening in the world. And he's come to make all things new. He raises up the people to address those issues. Now, at this point, the original audience, not knowing the story, how do you think they think that Jonah's going to respond? Well, I'm only going to briefly look at verse 3 because we'll come back to this next week. Here's what I think they think he'll do. Being the great prophet that he is, that he's going to say, Here I am, send me, Lord. You know, not my will, but your will, you know, that's what he's going to say, but not so fast. So we've seen God's call to Jonah and his jealousy for the nations in verse three. We see Jonah's response to the call and his jealousy for himself. That's what it always comes down to. It's either God centeredness or self-centeredness. And we see Jonah's here in verse three. Jonah rose. Sounds good so far. He rose. God called him. Jonah rose. And Jonah wished that the writer would have stopped right there. He rose to flee. He rose to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish being in modern day Spain. All right. That's about 2,000 miles away. <laughs> From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, 
He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, literally from the face of the Lord. Keep in mind, to flee from God, to flee from the presence of God is to rise up against God himself. It's to say, I know what you're telling me to do, but my way is better for me. It's an insurrection is what it is. It, it really is. And that's why if we're really vulnerable, all of us can relate to Jonah. Uh, we can. I go back to those days when we were about to go to, to Maryland, and I'm, I'm, I'm shamed at how I responded like a big baby that I could not sleep on a floor. I was above that. How different was I than Jonah here? Not different at all. We're in essence telling God when we're like this that my way of handling this situation, my way of handling this temptation, my way of handling handling your command to me uh, is better than your way. In fact, every time we do this, we're like our first parents in Adam and Eve, right? We're we're choosing to be our own God in a sense. We're we're taking authority over our own lives. That's a dangerous place to be. Jonah's going to find that. And we sin. And that's why we need to be freed. And as I was thinking about that, I came across a hymn that I've read. I don't know if you guys have ever sung this before. George Matheson. Have you ever heard uh, the, the hymn, um, Make Me a Captive? Beautiful hymn. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Isn't that beautiful? Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. But to free us, we first have to understand... What we're enslaved to. All right? I didn't realize how prideful I was until God called me to go to Maryland. All right? And God exposes these things oftentimes through circumstances, through people, and oftentimes through commands that he gives us. God is very good at exposing these things in our lives. And Matheson says in the hymn that the only way to be freed is to become the Lord's captive. Isn't that ironic language? I mean, it really is. In order to be truly free, you have to be captive to the Lord. That's Romans chapter 6. Robert's teaching that. That's, that's absolutely Romans 6 in a nutshell. And how does he make us a captive? By redeeming us in the one in whom Jonah points. Now, we're going to look at this in the next couple of weeks. I won't turn there tonight, but Matthew 12, Luke chapter 11, that we looked at many, many months ago, make it very clear that Jesus sees Jonah as a type pointing to him. Now, he's a negative type, but he's a type. He's a foreshadowing. And so the way we are freed is by being redeemed by the one in whom Jonah points. In fact, he's the only one who at the end of the day, concluded in every point of his life that he would obey God. He would obey the Father. And in so doing, he comes to redeem people like us, people who are very much like the Ninevites. And how does he do it? He comes in obedience to the Father. He keeps the law in our place. He dies on the cross, dying on the cross for sinners like us, sinners who were not enthralled by the glory of God, Sinners who are not loving our neighbor. Sinners who do not love the nations. Sinners like us. And that is why this book is so important for us. Now, as we close tonight, uh, I, I post.